Well, we welcome you back to our new study, which we've called Getting to Know the Old Testament. Starting next Sunday, we're going to get, we begin with Genesis, and from then on, we're looking at one book of the Old Testament per Sunday. This is intended to give us a, a high-level overview and understanding of each Old Testament book, and this in turn should aid your own reading and understanding of the Old Testament. Why bother with this at all? The Old Testament is, well, old, but we spent most of our time last week with a general introduction driving home the point that Christians need to know their Old Testament just as much as their New Testament. Yes, the New Testament directly applies to us. We are the church. New Testament was written for us, members of the New Covenant. But so much of our understanding of the New Testament is contingent on our understanding of the Old Testament. And furthermore, the Old Testament is still God's inspired word. And though it directly applied to national Israel, it still applies to us in principle. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It still behooves us to get to know the Old Testament. So hopefully, though, if you were here last week, you're at least sufficiently convinced of the necessity of getting to know the Old Testament. There's just a wealth of treasure there waiting for us to take it. Last time we spent most of our time just convincing you of that. We also spent a little time, though, giving you just a high-level introduction to the Old Testament itself. Just that 40,000-foot flyover, the whole Old Testament, giving a little window into some of the major themes and content. Wanted to provide a basic introduction. We covered what we called the Old Testament neighborhoods, if you will, which refer to the basic sections or divisions of the Old Testament. At least per our, our English Bible, the Old Testament is divided into five sections. The Torah, the historical books, the writings, the major prophets, the minor prophets. And just getting a little understanding of how the Old Testament is divided, how it's been grouped together, and what those groups are about already gives you a little framework for where you're at. It's like knowing the neighborhood in a new city. At least you have a little understanding of where you are. Helps you navigate. Helps you see the bigger picture. So we introduced you last time to some of the the neighborhoods, you might say, of the Old Testament. But I also wanted to introduce you to some of the landmarks of the Old Testament. We ran out of time, so we're going to cover that now. Eventually, we're going to get to the Torah tonight, because technically this is Lesson 2, which is mostly an introduction to the Torah That's the first five books. But first, we're kind of finishing up a little Old Testament introduction on on the landmark events. This just gives you that that big picture understanding of the flow of the whole Old Testament. A lot happens in the recorded history of the Old Testament. But no doubt, several key events stand out. And these key events prove to be absolutely critical in the progress of God's revelation. So if you want to understand that revelation, getting to know these key events is a key starting point. It's not all you do, but this is an absolute great starting point for knowing the Old Testament. It's kind of like if you're going to visit Washington, D.C., you want to get to know the city, what would you do? What would you see? You'd probably start with the landmarks, FDR Memorial, Thomas Jefferson Memorial, Vietnam Memorial, World War II Memorial. They have a lot of memorials in D.C. Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, the White House, Capitol Hill. There's more to D.C. than just these monuments. 
But they do compromise a lot of what DC has to offer. They stand out, and they also summarize and encapsulate our nation's history. And you'd, you'd learn a lot just by going to the major landmarks. And it's kind of that way with the Old Testament. You start and focus on some of the major landmark events, you're going to get a pretty good entry-level basic understanding of the whole thing, which is pretty good. We're going to see these in greater detail throughout our study. Let's finish that 40,000-foot flyover intro to the Old Testament and cover some of these major landmark events. And just to make it a little tiny bit easier, I wrote them down in a, in a very, very simple slide. So when you get a chance, you can throw that up there. It's not, it's not crazy or anything, but at least you don't have to scramble for notes. Let's just go over these. First, creation. Genesis 1 and 2. This is the account of God's creation of the universe. It's the explanation of the origin of everything. You have the revelation of the character of God as well. And it begins once there was nothing. And then God speaks. And then there's everything we see in six literal days. This culminated with the creation of mankind made in God's image. And man is the pinnacle of God's creation. And Genesis 1-2 really answers man's lifelong question of where did we come from? Well, we came from God. We were made by God in his image. Made to serve him, steward this world. And reflect his glory. Secondly is the fall. Second landmark, the fall. In the next chapter, Genesis 3, man was made holy but didn't remain holy. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's word and will. And as a result, death was introduced into God's creation. Adam and Eve were spiritually separated from God along with all of their descendants. Inheriting sin-cursed natures. And the earth itself was cursed. And life would be hard now for all people. And so the fall event really answers some other key questions like, why is the world the way it is? Why why is life so scarred by death and disease and disaster? Why are things so bad? Well, the answer is the curse brought on by sin. And that's really exemplified in next, the the flood, the next big event, Genesis 6 through 9. A man started to be fruitful and multiply, but not for the better, for the worse. Being corrupted with the sin nature, which just meant sin and wickedness, evil and violence, multiplied on the face of the earth. And man left to his own depraved heart, just compounded evil. And so God decided to judge all who lived, minus Noah and his family. And he was just going to deal out his perfect justice through a global flood. We also have here a revelation of God's mercy in saving some, his grace in saving Noah and his family. God is a just judge, but the flood also shows he's a God who rescues and saves those who trust in him. After this, though, comes Babel, the landmark event of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. It's kind of a sleeper. You don't think about it much, but it's, it's important. Man multiplied again after the flood. But nothing changed because God restarted, so to speak, creation in a way. But everything was different except man's heart. The eight sinners got on the ark. Eight sinners got off the ark. And it all happened again. And this time, though, man united in rebellion against God. And so God judged again, not by wiping man out, but by scattering man and confusing his languages. So at the very least, man would not unite together in his rebellion against God. 
God did want to see people united, but on his terms for his glory, not their own glory. And you see this in the turn of the page to Genesis 12 with the calling of Abraham. That God was going to unite people his way for for good, for glory. Genesis 12 and following, God showed his desire to redeem and, and to fix this world. He's going to do it through a person, through a line, a lineage, starting with Abraham. He set his love on Abraham. God chose him, called him out of the nations, entered into an unconditional covenant of blessing with Abraham and his descendants. There's really no underestimating the significance of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis. We'll see that plenty next week. But in particular, God promised not only to bless Abraham and his seed, but also to bless all the nations through Abraham. So we find now that the plan, that the world was created good, gets really messed up, everything's bad, but God shows up to show he's going to redeem. Things will change. But now God's plan and path of redemption is, is funneled through Abraham and his seed. That's a big mark, a big event. We'll learn more. After that comes the patriarchs, which carry that on. The rest of Genesis traces God starting to fulfill his promise to Abraham and giving him many descendants. But this is very interesting. We'll see how this separation forms between these two lines, the blessed and the cursed. We mostly follow the line of blessing, though, based on God's unconditional choice from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who was Israel, to his 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God reaffirmed his covenant with these descendants, and he made clear that he was going to bring about his blessing to the world through this chosen lineage, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes. Now God's promise is funneled through this seed. Not right away, though, because next comes Egypt. At the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, you find that Jacob and his sons were forced to migrate down to Egypt because of famine. And at first, they enjoyed prominence because of Joseph. But as the decades passed, Israel multiplied. They really were becoming, as the, the stars in the sky, innumerable. Egypt was threatened by this, so they enslaved the weaker Israelites. And Israel remained enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. It's longer than America's been a nation. And keep in mind, at this time, there was no written revelation. Not even the Torah had been written yet. Genesis through Deuteronomy didn't exist yet. The Israelites simply had the oral history of Abraham as their identity. And they were, though, largely wicked, idolatrous, unbelieving people from the start. But God would show his glory in, nonetheless, calling out and redeeming this people. And so the next landmark is the Exodus, which is huge, vast in importance in the Old Testament. The Exodus. And though undeserving and unbelieving, because of his promise, God would redeem and rescue this people. He called and commissioned Moses to lead the whole nation of Israel out of Egypt. God delivered them from Pharaoh through the ten plagues. The parting of the Red Sea, you remember all that. And then after the Exodus, though, God brought them to Mount Sinai. That's where God appeared. He entered into a covenant with the whole nation, formally. He would be their God, they would be his people. But he's now calling them as his nation. God began to give them his law, which was 
in a way summarized by the Ten Commandments. He gave them plans for a tabernacle where they could meet their God. And he gave them a land. He promised a land of their own. This is a huge moment where God was not simply redeeming one nation. Something to keep in mind. But God was making his desire known to bless all the nations of the world through this one holy nation. He would call them, set them apart, and through them to reach all the nations. As they lived under God's law, in God's land, with God as their king, walking in God's ways, the nations were meant to see the blessing that flowed to Israel and come to know their God. Didn't quite work out that way, though, because you have wilderness. Right after the Exodus comes wilderness. With the land promise of God within grasp, Israel fell short. And right after the Exodus, they quickly fell back into idolatry with uh, an important event of the golden calf. It's kind of a sub-landmark. But after much complaining as well, they decided, even later on, as they approached the land, they sent out spies. They figured, you know what? Too difficult. We don't want this. And they reject the land. Even though God had promised them this land, he would deliver them. They feared man instead. And they refused to go in and conquer this land. And so God in his wrath judged the nation. And they were doomed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation who had rejected God's promise perished in the wilderness. And it'd be the next generation that would take the land. And so far... Everything we've studied, by the way, is in the Torah. Which, so this, this, in a way, doubles as a little bit of Torah introduction. All the events so far, from creation to the creation of Israel, right on the cusp of the conquest, all of that is found in the first five books. Those are the foundation of Israel's history, their national identity, and so relevant for the church as well. By the end, though, Israel is right on the cusp of taking the promised land. There's still this hope, even after the wilderness wandering, that that the curse of sin and death might be overcome by God's grace, working through this chosen nation per his promises. And things do change for a little bit with the conquest. The conquest is one of the few blips of Israel largely obeying the Lord. This is in the book of Joshua primarily. After the death of Moses, Joshua assumes leadership. And he leads the second generation of the Israelites after the Exodus to take the land of promise. There are ups and downs, but this generation was mostly faithful. And they conquer most of the land that God had given to them. But they did fail to completely drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And they proved to be a real thorn in the side of Israel thereafter, leading them astray. And you really see this in the book of Judges, which is another landmark event, the time of the Judges. You can find this in the book of Judges. But the second generation passed away. And the generations thereafter, though, were not as faithful. They failed to remember their God. Israel had no king at the time. They were supposed to be led by their priestly class using the Torah to guide them. But they didn't. The nation sunk into division, disarray, idolatry. Uh, The theme of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king in the land. And there was a king. God was their king, but they did not recognize him. So this was another time of great sin and wickedness. Hundreds of years went by. And because of this, God 
handed them over. He allowed them to be oppressed in the land, sometimes even partially conquered. But whenever the people humbled themselves, they repented and returned to their God. They cried out for him. He sent them a deliverer, a judge, who thereafter rescued the people. And that cycle just repeated many times in the book of Judges. It finally reached a a breaking point, though. Something had to change. And this gets into the United Kingdom. The time, a different type of UK. The United Kingdom of Israel, where there were just one nation united under a king. This is 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings. The nations were not being blessed through Israel. The nations were not coming to know God through Israel. Israel was just as wicked as the rest. They weren't showing off their God or living in his ways. Well, maybe godly leadership was needed. So God enabled Israel to be led by kings. At first, the people chose Saul to be their king. He was not a good king. He was not a man after God's heart. But God himself thereafter raised up another David who loved him first and foremost. David is almost like his own landmark, uh, a prototype of the Messiah. Through David, God further revealed more of his redemptive plan. Through David, that the progress of revelation really takes a giant step. Remember, God promised to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. Well, now that promise is further funneled now through David and his seed. It would now be not just a seed of Abraham, but also a seed of David through whom God would bless and and fix this broken world. Well, Solomon was the first seed of David. He became king and he was a great king in many respects. He even built a temple for God's worship, but he was not that seed of David. He himself was a sinner who needed redemption. He fell short in many ways. One way Solomon fell short was in his parenting Evidenced by his children, his son, who immediately divided the kingdom. Which gets to the next landmark, the divided kingdom. First and Kings, First and Chronicles covers this. That Solomon's son immediately divided Israel. The ten northern tribes broke off, formed, we just call Israel or northern Israel. They left Judah and Benjamin in the south. And the northern tribes immediately fell away, turned away from Yahweh exclusively fell into idolatry. The first order of business was they built not one, but two golden calves that they worshiped as their God who brought them out of Egypt, one in the north, one in the south of northern Israel. All of their remaining kings would be wicked and lead the people away from the worship of Yahweh. Things fared only a little bit better in the south. The southern kingdom of Judah would know some godly kings who led the people in reform, but They had their fair share of wicked kings as well who reverted the people to idolatry. And this was another dark time in Israel's history. None of the kings of Judah proved to be that promised seed of David who would lead God's people in everlasting righteousness. To the contrary, they made things worse. God raised up some prophets during this time. and They, in part, rebuked the wicked kings, called the people to repent, Sometimes express God's judgment on the people, but they also held out hope that God has not forgotten his promises and even added to those promises. God is, he's still faithful. He will still redeem. He will still bring blessing and lift the curse. But again, not right away. After this comes the next event, the northern exile. It's the exile of the 10 northern tribes. 
God's patience with them was over, 722 BC. The northern kingdom had become so wicked that God was going to judge them. Like he said he was going to do, that was actually promised. He enabled the Assyrian Empire to come in and just take over the north. It took them into captivity. The ten northern tribes were scattered. They would never come back formally. The ten northern tribes never had a formal return to the land. At this time, though, southern Israel was spared from exile, but that didn't last forever. The next event is the southern exile. Roughly 150 years later, 586 BC. That's when time ran out for the southern kingdom. They too had progressed in wickedness and idolatry that God deemed the time had come for God to judge them. This time God used the Babylonian empire. King Nebuchadnezzar came in. He took over Jerusalem. He destroyed Solomon's temple, basically destroyed the city, and he led the people away as captives. This is a big time. Some of the major prophets ministered during this time. They, they predicted this was going to happen. But they also promised that God was not forgetting his people or his promises. And even after 70 years of captivity, God would bring them back. And God did. You next have the return from exile. After 70 years in captivity, God enabled, or rather began to enable Israel to return to the promised land Things were not the same, though. The temple was eventually rebuilt, but not according to its former glory. Jerusalem was in a disarray. Israel never truly gained full sovereignty. A little bit of time during the, the Maccabees, but not, not really full, proper sovereignty. Israel struggled to understand her sad condition. I thought they were the chosen people. Where, where's this blessing? I thought God promised to bless us. But God here raised up some final prophets to explain that God had not forgotten his original promises. They were unfaithful. That's why they see the things that, the way they are. God said this would happen if they forsook him. But God would always remain faithful. He was still going to bless the world and lift the curse. But this blessing and redemption would come through a special servant, a Messiah. And this would be Israel and the world's last hope. This is where the Old Testament ends. And just like the time in Egypt, God goes silent for 400 years. Nothing. No more revelation. No more official prophets. Israel and the nations are left waiting for one who would come to fix this world, undo the curse, deliver Israel, bless the nations. Of course, we know this deliverer is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. He's the one who came roughly 400 years thereafter. He came as the ultimate seed of Abraham and seed of David. He came as the second Adam to bring God's blessing on Israel and on all the nations. He's the one who would deal with the problems of this world, which no one else could do. And this really gets at the purpose of Old Testament revelation, just the whole Old Testament. It's not just history, although it is true history. But God inspired the biblical writers to record selectively what they did for purpose. And this purpose, in part, is to reveal the character of God, the mind of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God. But in large part, we would say it's all to reveal and point to Jesus. It's the revelation of God and leading up to his son, Jesus. The Old Testament is not 
directly about Jesus, but it's all about Jesus at the same time. I mean, realize Genesis 3 sets up the rest of the Bible. It's only two chapters where things are very good. You only get two really good chapters. But after that, everything's messed up. Sin, Satan, and death reign over this world that God made. How will man be freed from this curse and reconciled to God? Like, what's it going to take? How will blessing come? Well, in short, God gave his people prophets, priests, and kings to lead them to righteousness, but these were not enough because the only prophets, priests, and kings that God had to choose from were all sinners who themselves needed redemption. None of them could lead God's people free from slavery to sin. None of them had the power to defeat the devil, and none could conquer death itself, leading us into the heavenly promised land. But even here, God would do for us, once again, what we could not do for ourselves. He would make a provision for our needs to deliver us from sin and Satan and death. He was going to provide that the perfect man, the perfect prophet, priest, and king in one. Son of Adam, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God, God the Son. He would set his people free, forgive them from, of their sins, overcome the devil, lead them in a new way, bring in everlasting righteousness. Through failure after failure, the Old Testament just builds up the anticipation that, that, that it's going to take like God himself to fix this mess. And well, that, that is exactly right. But he comes in the form of Jesus in the New Testament, we see that Savior come. But again, one of, the, one of the big reasons we're studying all this is his coming. That this Talk about the biggest event. These landmark events are nothing compared to the coming of the Christ. It is the biggest event, of course, for us as Christians. But that event, that truth itself cannot be fully appreciated without all these, without these other landmark events, understanding how they point to, prepare, set up, explain the coming of the Christ. Jesus did not appear on the scene out of nowhere. His coming was the culmination and the answer to thousands of years of problem and promise. And again, keep saying it, the more you understand that the problem and promise of the Old Testament, you will understand and appreciate the answer in the Christ. Well, we'll stop there. Hopefully that gives you just a better overview of like the whole Old Testament. It's on you to read the whole thing. Hope you do that. Make time to do that. But having just, okay, I've got the neighborhoods. Oh, I see these landmark events that can just help you put it together to, to learn more and to appreciate it. We do need to move on. So we will do that now. We're going to transition and just talk about the first five books, the Torah. Like I said, no matter what, next week we're just doing Genesis. We're moving on. But with the time we have left, I'll just give you what we can, an introduction to the Torah. Torah refers to the first five books of the Bible. It's a Jewish title for the first five books. That means instruction or law. I didn't tell you to switch slides. No, it's okay. Leave it. Everyone's looking at the slide. I see you people. You're, all, you're not looking at me. You're looking behind me. That's okay. Take notes now before he moves it. Anyway, the Torah is also sometimes called the Pentateuch. That's the Greek name. Penta means five. Tukas means volume. It's a five-volume book or five scrolls. And that, that's a good title because don't think of these as five separate books. 
They're not. They're unified whole. They're written together. They're always grouped together. It's really better to see this as a five-volume single book, the Torah, the first five books. They always go together. The titles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, never appear in the Bible. Now, the word Exodus appears, but not as a title of a book. They're never called by their names. That's because the Hebrews did not call them by these names. They labeled them by the first phrase in the book. They called Genesis in the beginning. They called Exodus, these are the names. They called Leviticus, and he called. They called Numbers in the desert, and they called Deuteronomy, these are the words. Don't ask me why, but they simply labeled these books by the first few words in the book. Our English names came later from the Latin Vulgate, which drew from the Greek Septuagint. Now, look, later references to these books, though, think about it. When these first five books are referenced in the New Testament, how are they referred to? Individually or corporately? It's always together as a, as a whole book, corporately. The unified whole of the Torah goes by many names. They're never called out like in Deuteronomy, he said this. It's always the law. Let me give you the various titles. Don't Google this. So you don't need to write this down. But the law, the book of the law, the book of the law of Moses, the book of Moses, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the law of God, the book of the law of God, the book of the law of the Lord. goes by many names, but the, the theme is it's, it's one book. And that's already a good takeaway. As you think about the first five books of the Bible, they were distinct. They were split up probably so that they would fit on five separate scrolls because they were limited by scroll length. And they do have divisions and, and do have some distinct themes. But there's no doubt they're a unified whole at the same time. So I already appreciate that, that this law goes together. It's meant to go together. It's meant to be understood together. And we will see that play out as we look at the individual parts, hopefully not losing sight of the whole. Now let's cover an outline. I was going to do an overview, but since we just kind of did that with the whole Old Testament, well, we covered the high-level overview of the Torah, which is creation to wilderness right before the conquest. We don't need to repeat that. What might be more helpful is just an outline of the first five books. What I didn't write down is the simplest outline. It's a three-part outline. It's Genesis 1 through 11, primeval history. That's the beginning of all things and the nations. Genesis 12 through 50, patriarchal history. And then Exodus through Deuteronomy. All of Exodus through Deuteronomy is the history of national Israel. Primeval history, patriarchal history, national Israel history. You could group it up into three big sections. Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 12 through 50, and then Exodus through Deuteronomy. But if you want a little bit more detailed outline, which I have on the notes behind me, and it's mostly geographical, geographically focused. That's one way you can kind of split up and organize the, uh, the Torah. It starts with a, a kind of a six-part outline. And it's helpful for that big picture flow of the Torah. Genesis 1 through 11. That always goes together. We'll see that a lot next week. Genesis 1 through 11 is big on just the history of the nations before Israel leading up to God's calling of Abraham. But it's the origin of the world and the nations. It covers creation, fall, flood, the nations, Babel. But then Genesis 12 through 50, likewise, always goes together. The origin of Israel through the patriarchs. And if you don't know, patriarchs is simply what we often call, or the title we use for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
and, and even his sons. Now, this also includes the move to Egypt, but it's the origin of the patriarchs and how they ended up in Egypt. Then you get Exodus 1 through 18, and that's Israel from Egypt to Sinai. Their time from Egypt to Sinai. This includes the calling of Moses, the 10 plagues, the Passover, the Exodus, parting of the Red Sea, and the journey to Sinai. Exodus 1 through 18 covers all of that. Then you get to a big section, Exodus 19 through Numbers 10, verse 10. This is, you can simplify, the law at Sinai. It's not the only portion of the law, but this is the first big delivery of the law at Sinai. Israel is now camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They don't go up. Only Moses and later a few others go up. But this is the giving of the law. You know the Ten Commandments. This is, this is that where it happens, Exodus 20. So the law at Sinai is huge. After that, Numbers 10, verse 11, through the end of Numbers chapter 21, you have Israel in the desert. This includes their departure from Sinai, where they go towards the promised land. They send out spies, but they, they refuse to take the land, so they're judged in the wilderness. This includes their wilderness wanderings. You have Balaam's prophecies at the end of this time, and Joshua is chosen as a successor. But this is Israel's journey from Sinai, including the wilderness. That leaves one final division, Numbers 22 through Deuteronomy 34. This is Israel camped on the plains of Moab. Maybe next time I'll throw up a little map as well, because geography will really help, especially with the Old Testament. I mean, most of you, in a, if you've got a study Bible, the very, very back has probably some nice maps. Nice, just study a few maps. Get a little geography going on. But plains of Moab, it's just south uh, east of the promised land. They're right there, ready to cross the Jordan, ready to conquer. And that is Numbers 22 through Deuteronomy 34. It's the second generation. They've all died in the wilderness, the first generation. Now, this is second generation. They're ready to conquer the land. There's a retelling of the law. And it ends with the death and burial of Moses. And that's how the Torah ends. So there's a little high-level outline just helping you go through it. If you just focus on each section and try and understand each section, breaking it into smaller bites helps. Now let's cover a few more points here with overall Torah introduction. The author, who wrote the Torah? Well, Moses. The Bible itself attributes the authorship of the Torah to Moses. I know I'm giving you a high-level overview. Next week when we do Genesis, we'll really be a lot in the biblical text itself. This is mostly just me summarizing. But if you want to see a few verses, you can turn to Exodus 34. Just give you a few verses that show mosaic authorship. You know, you can turn to Exodus 34. I'll read Exodus 24, verse 4, which says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord as God was giving the law. Moses was the scribe. Exodus 34, verse 27 adds, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. You might not have the time to turn to these, but Numbers 33, verse 2, it says, Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. 
he was writing down their travels. He's keeping a travel log. And then Deuteronomy 31 verse 9. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And there are more verses attest that Moses wrote the Torah. It's no wonder that already by the time of Joshua, it came right after Moses, that the Torah was immediately referred to as the book of the law of Moses. That's Joshua 8, 31 through 34. Like it's immediately referred to as like it's the law of the book of Moses. Now there's one little snag that people wonder about because you read Deuteronomy 34, the last chapter, the death and burial of Moses. If Moses wrote the Torah, how do you write that? Did he, did he write it about his own death and burial prophetically? Some think so. But honestly, the, the simplest answer is that simply his chosen successor by the Lord, Joshua, just wrote that and added that to the end of the Torah. And Joshua thereafter compiled the next volume, Joshua, which picks up immediately where the end of Deuteronomy leaves off. In God's providence, Moses was probably the person most equipped to write such a work as the Torah, which for ancient literature, it is a massive and profound work. You know, being raised in Pharaoh's court, He's presumably one of the most literate and knowledgeable people around. He was familiar with Jewish and Egyptian culture. He was an eyewitness to most of the events of the Torah. And being personally invited up Mount Sinai into God's presence, Moses received direct revelation about the creation of the world. So that there's, he, how, how could he know about the creation of the world? Well, this is clearly special supernatural revelation on Sinai, God told him, revealed to him these things. Moses is, well, the perfect candidate for that. And really sealing the deal, Jesus believed Moses wrote the Torah. It's good enough for Jesus. Well, good enough for me. I believe what he believed. So he attests to Mosaic authorship many times. Well, me too. Well, for the sake of time, we'll talk about some themes. I was going to spend more time on themes. We'll cut it maybe a little bit short. Themes are great. It's enriching to look at the big themes of a, of a work. But you could, you could go spend a long time studying themes. So maybe I'll leave it to you if you have a study Bible. Or I can recommend some resources if you want to dive a little deeper into some themes of the Torah. You can do so. We will get into themes of the individual books too. But let me just give you a few of the bigger themes of the Torah. I mean, obviously, God is a theme. I mean, the Torah is the first written revelation of God, the person and work of God. The only exception might be if the book of Job was written earlier, perhaps. We don't know for sure. But nonetheless, in the Torah, you have God's self-disclosure on full display. The character of God, the nature of God, the person of God, the attributes of God, the works of God. It's just, here it is. Here's the first huge dose of who this God is. In a simplified form, Genesis showcases the sovereignty of God, Exodus, the redemption of God, Leviticus, the holiness of God, Numbers, the justice of God, Deuteronomy, the righteousness of God. That's simplified, but it's just, it's God on display. I mean, God is, it's a big theme in the whole Bible, the Torah especially. Another big theme is covenant. I mean, how can you say, talk about the Torah without talking about covenant? We'll see this term and concept all throughout the Old Testament and the individual books of the Torah. 
But overall, just, just start getting familiar with this term, this concept of covenant. A lot more to come. But in basic, a covenant is a binding relationship between two parties, like a, a contract. And it, God chose to reveal his plan for mankind, his plan for redemption, through the, this terminology of covenant. It's a way the people then could have understood. And God, though, he made many unilateral covenants where it really was just up to one party. He was going to just make it happen. One party gives, one party receives. He had gave many unilateral covenants to call a people to himself to bless them. You have, for example, the Noahic covenant, Genesis 8, Genesis 9, where God promises not to destroy the world with a flood, gives the sign of the rainbow for that covenant promise. You have the Abrahamic covenant. We'll save more of this for next week because that's huge in Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant. But Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, but really not till Genesis 15, he enters into a, a formal binding covenant. Unilateral, God will simply bless him. God just chose this pagan named Abram out of the nations, brought him to the land, and just, I'm just going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And the, the land uh, promise, a seed promise, a blessing promise, all God just choosing to bless Abraham and his descendants, and through Abraham, all the nations. That's a big one. And also, of course, the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 19, 24. I mean, there's a ton of verses that expound on the Mosaic Covenant. Really, though, it's like the Israelite covenant. God was covenanting with the nation. Moses was the mediator. This was God saying, I will be your God. You're going to be my people. Like we're, we're just sealing the deal here. This is the marriage ceremony between the nation, this seed of Abraham and, and me, the Mosaic covenant. God called them to himself. He would be their king. He gave them his law and through them, he would bless the nations. We'll learn a lot more about covenants in the weeks to come. A couple more themes here real quick. You have sin and judgment. Sin and judgment. I mean, Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Genesis 6 through 9, the flood. Genesis 11, Babel. Genesis 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Exodus 32, the golden calf. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. Number 16, Korah's rebellion. And then the whole generation of the wilderness dies because of their unbelief. There's a lot of sin and judgment in the Torah. There's numerous episodes of man's sinfulness, wickedness, and rebellion against God. And it merits God's just judgment. Every episode of judgment in the Old Testament is just. That's exactly what they deserved. It's perfect, pure justice. That's part of God's perfections. You don't want a God who's not just. You don't want a God who allows evil to go unchecked forever or even promotes evil. Then God judges evil. Those who did evil, rebelled against him, and lived in sin, he justly judges. This really shows man left to his own with his depraved nature is only going to fall deeper and deeper into darkness. God's judgment is really a mercy on the rest of the world where at times he will intervene and just take out those who have gone too far in the darkness and put an end to the spread of wickedness on the world. But just know whenever God judges, he is perfectly just and righteous. But that's not all because another big theme is mercy and redemption. 
Mercy and redemption, you might not think of that. So many caricature the Old Testament, like, well, that's God. He's, just, he's only a just judge. So harsh. New Testament, Jesus, I mean, he's like peace and love, right? But you know, Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else. At the same time, there are plenty of episodes of God's mercy and grace and redemption and love in the Old Testament. And in the Torah, that's a big theme. Like Genesis 3, he spares the human race and gives a hope of redemption from the beginning. Genesis 6 through 9, he spares Noah and his family and he gives humanity another chance. Genesis 11 through 50, he calls Abraham. He preserves this family, undeserved mercy on a pagan, all part of God's plan to answer the curse of sin and death. Exodus 1 through 18, God graciously redeems Israel from their bondage to Egypt. They didn't deserve that. Exodus 19 through 24, God enters into a covenant just to bless that people. They were entirely undeserving. Even in the wilderness, God didn't wipe them out. He still preserved them, cared for them, fed them, defended them, brought them to the promised land, and many more. There's so many notes of God's mercy, grace, love, and redemption in the Torah. Uh, Don't fall into that trap of thinking Old Testament, mean, harsh, bad. New Testament, hippie, peace, love. It's uh, God is, he's the kindness and the severity of God, the, the love and the justice of God are perfectly balanced. They're both part of his perfections. Don't split God up like that. He is one God. These are all facets of his nature, and they're everywhere in Scripture, old and new. Let's do two more real quick. Election. Believe it or not, it's a huge theme in the Torah. It's inescapable. God is a choosing God. Abraham was this pagan who didn't know or worship Yahweh. God revealed himself and called him, chose him. Abraham's descendants He had many. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Then he chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Joseph and Judah to rise to prominence over their brothers. None of these were firstborn sons, by the way. God does not choose as man chooses. God chooses Moses. Moses was not looking for God. He just sees a burning bush. God chooses him. And then God chooses the whole nation of Israel. They weren't greater or wiser or stronger But God unconditionally chose the weak things to shame the strong. And you really see God's plan of redemption is tied to his choice, his election. He simply is working out a plan to fix and redeem this world per his will. And that involves him intervening and and calling some into the light for his purposes and his glory. And the last theme we'll just include for now is the law. Law. I mean, of course, you think Torah, you, you think law. Now, don't think of the Torah as just, oh, the first five books, just like a bunch of commands, right? Well, there's a lot, but it's not just that. It's actually mostly historical narrative. It's mostly the, the history of, of Israel's beginnings. But that said, there are many sections that compose a lot of law. In Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you've got a lot of law in there. Commands, statutes, ordinances, God's will for national Israel, The rabbis counted 613 commands in the Torah. They are summarized. Thankfully, there's like 10, just we can summarize, right? The 10 commandments. The study of law is really fascinating. There's a lot of direct commands like thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. There's also a lot of case law. Like if someone does this, then this. Like that third person case law for Israel and the land. That final slide up there? There you go. You're reading my mind, David. There's a, you know, just... 
because if I said that, what's the point? But by looking at it, you can see just some six main prescriptive sections in the Torah. The Decalogue, Exodus 20. The Book of the Covenant, Exodus 21 through 23. The Tabernacle Prescriptions, Exodus 25 through 31. The Manual on Ritual Worship, Leviticus 1 through 7. And the Holiness Code, Leviticus 17 through 25. And the really Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomic Code, Deuteronomy 12 through 26. Those are the the six major bursts of laws and commands in the Torah where God is giving his people his will for them to live as his people in the land with him as their king, priestly class. This is it. This is his revelation of his will for them and their national identity. And so even just knowing that, you can almost just do a study on the law. Don't avoid those chapters. Now that you know them, it's like, okay, I know which ones to skip. No. You read those two and find out what was God's will for this theocratic nation and what was revealed. Now, let's quickly finish up one last section here, just purpose. We'll end with this, the purpose of the Torah. Still overall, the purpose of this five-volume book. Who was the initial audience of the Torah? Who knows? The initial audience not just Israel generally, specifically, who was the initial audience? Does anyone know? It was the second generation of Jews after the Exodus. The Torah was written, first and foremost, directly to the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus. They're sitting on the plains of Moab. They've come out of the wilderness after the 40 years. They're camped there. And that's where Moses writes Deuteronomy and perhaps compiles everything else he's written into the Torah. And it was written for them, for the second generation. They're about to take the land, and Moses, God had Moses write this, that they would not do what the first generation did. So they're the primary audience. But of course, it's, it's also written for the rest of Israel, all of Israel thereafter. But why did God have Moses record this work a little more broadly? For that second generation who's about to take the land per God's covenant with them, but also the generations thereafter, why did God give the Torah to them? Three simplifications. First, this is just the self-disclosure of God. It's the revelation of God. That God was giving Israel an understanding of who he was. How did they know God? They look at the stars, they can learn a little bit, but there was no special revelation at this time. But this God at Sinai just covenanted with them. Hey, I'm going to be your God. All these other gods in the lands, they're not real. I will be your God. I'm the real God. You're going to be my people. Who are you? Like, who is this God? There's a lot of false gods and false knowledge of God. Well, they needed to know him. Special revelation was needed. And so the Torah was given to reveal The character of God, the nature of God, the power of God, the works of God. He's the one who made all things. He's the one who made Israel, redeemed them from Egypt. This is the God that brought them up. It's not a golden calf. This was the one who brought them out of Egypt. So first, the Torah was given as the self-disclosure of their God. Secondly, it was the national identity of Israel. The Torah was given to form the national identity of Israel. It was, it was telling them how Israel came to be. God's unconditional choice of their forefathers. That God simply set his love on this people. They were a chosen race. They were called to be the people of God. 
They were given the law. That was like a type of constitution to their nation. They were to be holy and set apart, different from the surrounding nations and the land that God was giving them. The Torah was their sacred history then, reminding them and their descendants, this is who we are. This is who we're supposed to be. This is why we do the things we do, like, you know, these sacrifices. This, this, this is why we do all this. And so the Torah basically formed the national identity of Israel as the people of the one true God. And that's huge. And lastly, the Torah gave Israel her mission, the mission of God through Israel. Then the Torah, God was beginning to reveal his gospel, which is for all the nations, the good news. Even after the, the fall, there's the promise of the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. And that promise is not just for Israel. It's for all the nations who long to be redeemed from the curse of sin and death. And God did not simply choose to bless Israel. His will has always been to bless all the nations through Israel. Israel was going to have a key role in that plan, witnessing that the nature and character of God in the land, letting the light shine. Now, of course, Israel would fail in that mission. God knew that. God forecasted their failure in Deuteronomy. But God would not fail. He would remain faithful, both to ultimately redeem Israel and bless them, while raising up a chief Israelite, one through whom the nations would be blessed. He would fulfill all of his promises. And we know that, of course, again, to be the Messiah. But it's amazing to find out how many messianic promises are found in the Torah. How much of Jesus can be seen in the Torah through promise form. The Torah is just the beginning of God's word to man. But already contains such a wealth of truth of who God is. And who will be the one who will ultimately reconcile us to that God. How can he be our God? How can we be his people truly? And we, we find that beginning in the Torah. And of course ultimately through what's revealed about the Messiah. We look forward to learning more and more and more about that as from here on out we get into each book one by one. Look forward to it. Hopefully you are as well. That's it for today. Let's go ahead and pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word and just learning about it, I hope, excites us. We see how significant a gift we have in our hands. We, we are privileged we think about those generations of Israelites, the first generation, even the second generation. You, you started to reveal yourself to them. You gave them your word, but they didn't have a copy in their hands. They had no access. They had to go through a mediator, the priests. They get to hear it once a year at best, read publicly. And even the generations before them with no revelation at all, simply going by the word passed down orally. Lord, we, we are not entitled to your word. It is simply a gift of grace that you reveal yourself and that you give us your word. That is purely your grace gift. How privileged we are to hold fully completed, printed, nice bound paperback Bibles in our hand. But we have access to now the totality of your revelation. I pray at least tonight we don't take that for granted. And hearing how rich it is, how much is in there, the revelation of who our God is, what he's doing through Israel and the church. Uh, I pray that just stirs our hearts to know. Give us a, 
sanctified curiosity that we would now just dive in and read and study and learn. Feed on your word, not just to build up our heads, but also to fuel our hands and feet to serve you. But it definitely starts with knowing you through your word. And even the first five books, the Torah, how much is already revealed. Just give us a hunger and a thirst for you as found in your word. We know you would bless that. And we pray you do here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.